Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the premiers of the Maritimes and Ontario say a Team Canada approach is what's needed to help the health care crisis. But yesterday's summit was big on talk and low on immediate solutions. We'll discuss that. What's the latest in German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Prime Minister Trudeau's meetings? Well, we'll get into the details about some deals that are being made. And a meeting earlier this week, PGA Tour players made some pretty bold suggestions to the commissioner. Joe Callahan, journalist for the Toronto Star and The Guardian, will talk about that with us. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about the, uh, well, they call it anyway, the Healthcare Summit. Uh, this being held out in the, uh, the Maritime Provinces, of course. That's with our Premier, uh, of course, Doug Ford, and, and three of the uh, Atlantic Premiers. And uh, the Maritimes in Ontario say that they need a Team Canada approach uh, to find a solution for the healthcare crisis facing their respective regions. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says that any solution must draw on suggestions from nurses, doctors, heads of hospitals, and the government. We need to start sharing best practices, better ways of doing things. What, what are you hearing in New Brunswick? What are you hearing in PEI and, and in Nova Scotia? And, and really uh, support each other. That's never happened. I've ne- never seen everyone as coordinated and focused uh, for the entire country as we are now. Well, I don't know if that's going to get us any closer to the finish line here, but uh, let's get another perspective on this. Uh, Glad to welcome back to the program Mike Schreiner. Mike, of course, is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and the MPP for Guelph. Uh, Mike, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be on. I I know when you get a a group of premiers together like this, and you just heard the the premier's, uh, Doug Ford's comments, that you have never seen them like this. Well, there, there is a sense of unity every time the premiers get back. I mean, a lot of what we heard yesterday from this summit is what we've heard for the last number of years. We need more money from the federal government, and uh, you know the, the status quo is not working. Well, we know that already, and we know that probably the federal government has to kick in. But I, I guess the frustration I'm feeling, Mike, is these are the people, these premiers, they want to be the, the ones who are in charge of the delivery of health care. They don't seem to have much of an idea as to how to fix this problem. Yeah, that's what was so infuriating, Bill, about the clip you just played from the premier. Uh, nurses, doctors, other healthcare professionals for, well, ever since I've been an MPP over the last four years, but especially over the last two years of the pandemic, have been calling for uh, this government to make investments in primary health care, to make investments in mental health services, to take pressure off of hospitals, uh, investments in the social determinants of health, like addressing poverty and housing uh, affordability, for example. Uh, And then more recently in Ontario, calling on the premier uh, to repeal Bill 124, which caps wages and benefits for frontline healthcare workers at 1% at a time when inflation is 8%. So a significant pay cut, uh, which has led to a health human resources capacity crisis. So, you know, I think the premier should have been listening to these so the, the experts and the frontline healthcare providers years ago, uh, instead of standing, standing by and allowing the system uh, to get to the crisis point that it is right now. And in terms of what we heard yesterday, you know, I fundamentally believe the federal government has to step up with more money uh, for healthcare for provinces across the country. I think I would hope every premier would be united in that every government and opposition party at the provincial level would be united in that. But the bottom line is, is Doug Ford, if he's going to have any credibility making that case, actually has to spend the money 
that's been budgeted for health care. You know, last year they underspent the health budget by $1.8 billion, according to the Independent Financial Accountability Officer. Like, who does that when you're facing a once-in-a-century pandemic and the healthcare system is facing the kind of crisis it is right now? Well, and to that point, I mean, a pox on both their houses. I mean, I agree with you. The feds have to step up here. And I, I know they argue back and forth here. And they said, well, wait a second. You know, the, the provinces uh, and the premier's numbers about how much we spend is not really realistic. And they talk about tax benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, e- even with that, it's not enough money. I mean, it used to be a 50-50 split, and, and they've abrogated their responsibility. But your point is well taken. On the other side of that coin, the job the premiers have done in spending the money that they do get has been just terrible. I mean, they're not investing where they should. Uh, you know, I, you know. Well, let's talk about a couple of the things here. I mean, and, and you know, to, to what needs to be done here. Uh, they they want to you know, take people out of, uh, of hospitals and put them in long-term care facilities, uh, which I think is really, you know, that's just offloading the problem to another facility, which already has its own staffing problems. But your point about, you know, preventative measures, I think, is something that nobody seems to want to talk about here, especially here in Ontario. How about we prevent people from going into the hospital in the first time? What about addressing some of those issues? That doesn't seem to be part of the discussion. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that, Bill. And, you know, part of the challenge is, is that oftentimes that has a 20-year payback period. So, you know, most governments have a four-year uh, window uh, because they're constantly thinking about re-election instead of, like, you know, what's best for the people of Ontario. You know, I, I remember uh, visiting a hospital and speaking with the hospital CEO, and they were talking about the importance of increased uh, investment in hospital capacity. And I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I fully support that. But you may not like what I'm about ready to say. I think far more investment needs to go into prevention addressing poverty, uh, making sure people have access to healthy food, healthy lifestyles, uh, housing. I can't tell you how many doctors have said a prescription for housing. And and I said, so, you, you know, the hospital CEO said, oh, no, I'm fundamentally absolutely agree with you. If we'd made those kinds of investments 20 years ago, we wouldn't be in the crisis that we are today. And, and so this CEO was like, you know, we got to start making those investments because I don't want to be standing here meeting with you in 20 years saying, oh, if we had only made those investments in, in pr- promoting health and preventing illness, we want to be in the crisis we are today. So we're going to need both. We're going to need to increase capacity. And that starts with investing in the people who deliver that care, making sure we have enough nurses, PSWs, doctors at the frontline healthcare providers and that they're paid fair wages with fair benefits and good working conditions. And we're going to have to make sure we make investments in addressing mental health care, uh, primary and community-based and home care, uh, that we address poverty, uh, housing affordability, and other social determinants of health. Let's talk about that because, I, I, again, they don't seem to want to get into the discussion about, about you know, remuneration and, and nurses. Uh, and they made a big deal, you know, the health minister uh, and, and even the premier last week when they, they rolled out their, their solution, I guess, or part of the solution. They, they said they're going to, you know, fast track bringing foreign nurses in. That's a great idea, Mike. I think that's fabulous. But what's, what's to stop those people when they come into this country from going into the private sector? Because they get paid a lot more if they go in there. So is, is it really solving the crisis? And what are they doing about retaining the staff that they have? There are, you know, and I know, we've heard stories on almost on a daily basis now of nurses that have just thrown up their hands and said, I can't do this anymore. Some of them go into the private sector where they make more money. Some of them just leave altogether. That, that's not solving the problem. Yeah, not at all. So I'm a big supporter of fast-tracking accreditation for uh, internationally trained doctors and nurses. 
according to the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, you know, there may be between 15 and 20,000 uh, nurses that are uh, foreign trained that could be accredited in Ontario if there wasn't so much red tape. I've been calling for this for over two years to help uh, take strain off of existing nurses. But at the same time as we're bringing new nurses into the system, we have to take care of the people who are already there uh, by you know, removing the 1% cap on their wages and benefits. And I always wanna make sure it's people understand it's benefits as well. Think of all the trauma nurses have gone through um, working in understaffed uh, hospitals, especially over the last two years, just seeing all the, um, you know, people struggling and uh, sadly passing away uh, due to the pandemic and having your mental health benefits capped at 1%. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it shows a level of disrespect that is leading a number of nurses to leave the profession, which is why, you know, during the provincial election, I asked the premier if he'd actually even talked to a nurse lately, uh, because he clearly doesn't seem to understand the stress that they're facing in, you know, being overworked, un understaffed, and quite frankly, uh, un uh, disrespected by this particular government. So let's retain the nurses we have. Yes, let's recruit more nurses, both by fast-tracking uh, accreditation of internationally trained nurses and by you know opening up more spaces uh, in our colleges and universities for, for the nurses of the future to be trained as well. But it has to be being trained for a profession that's attractive to work in. That means fair wages, fair benefits, and better working conditions. In the clip that we played just before you, you jumped on with us here, he was talking about, you know, we need to talk to the other premiers and find out what's going on. Uh, they're facing many of the same problems, and I don't know that any of them have any of the solutions. Uh, God bless them all. You know, but the reaction here should be, what, why aren't we looking even out, outside of Canada to see who does it better? And we already know that there are jurisdictions. Uh, the Scandinavian countries, the UK, uh, have a much better system of health delivery. Uh, it's not cheap. Uh, but, you know, you, you get what you pay for in, in this and just about everything else. They, they don't seem to want to, to do that. They just, this is, you know, fighting among themselves is, is not really solving the problem here. Why can't we look offshore and look at some of these other directions and see how they're doing this and, 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 and understand that there's going to be a cost to this? You, you know, they, they're trying to balance something here, Mike. But, you know, we, we don't want to spend a whole lot of money on this. But at the same time, we want a better system. I, I don't know that you can have it both ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the problem is is that oftentimes, and I think the current government is looking at this from a siloed approach, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, for example, um, they have much better programs to uh, eliminate poverty, to ensure everyone has an affordable place to call home. Well, uh, just on that sure point, let me just jump in help. for a second. They yeah. have they have they have a living wage program in most in exactly. all three of those countries I do believe. Uh, exactly. th there's a law I think it's in Denmark where people have to have at least five to six weeks of holidays every year. That's a mental health issue. It's not just you know let's yep. uh, take some time off work. We don't seem to have that mindset here. Exactly, and so that's why sometimes it's hard to compare health system to health system because the comparison needs to include all these other environmental and social factors that, that lead to people's health. And then one of my big concerns, uh, what I heard uh, yesterday from the, from the premiers was really an opening to saying, hey, let's reconsider the Canada Health Act. And to me, that is code for privatization. And, you know, we've seen what privatization has done in the U.S. I mean, you have the most expensive healthcare system in the world uh, with some of the worst outcomes. 
because so much of the money gets sucked out for shareholders instead of actually going to caring for people. And so, you know, before, you know, the premier, you know, continues down further privatization of our healthcare system, why don't we actually invest in the system we have now properly? In Ontario's case, we have the lowest per capita funding for healthcare of any province in the country. So why don't we invest in making the system we have better and let's create some innovation in that system. Um, and there's numerous fantastic ideas for innovation within the public system that I've heard from from doctors, nurses, uh, healthcare administrators. Uh, and so why don't we make those investments before opening the door to further privatization, which seems to be what the premier's agenda is. Well, and to that point, instead of a photo op with a bunch of other premiers uh, discussing the same problems and coming up with the same uh, ideas that they have for the last five or six years, I, I'd love to see a picture of the premier sitting around a table with a bunch of nurses and doctors who have been working in ERs and, and uh, other facilities over the last two years now and say, okay, you tell us what's going on. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. and I think that should be part of the problem or the part of the solution, rather, to the problems that we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've had the uh, president of the Ontario Nurses Association uh, be at Queen's Park a fair number of times uh, since during the summer sitting. And, you know, every time the premier of the health minister says, oh, hey, we're meeting with these folks. You know, she's up in the gallery right next to my seat. She's shaking her head. No, they're not. No, they're not. And so, you know what? You're absolutely right. Like, I, I would love to see a roundtable discussion uh, with the health minister, the premier, uh, might, might as well invite the opposition leaders as well, sitting down with doctors, nurses, healthcare policy experts, and having an open, honest discussion about the challenges that the system is facing and the solutions. Because I can't tell you how many you know, ideas around how to solve this crisis have been put forward by nurses, doctors, um, hospital administrators, academics, uh, and other other uh, frontline healthcare providers. Well, and, and it, it's, you know, when he says outside the box thinking, I mean, that's one of those things that you have to start doing is start talking to the people that are on the front lines. They may not have all the answers or all the solutions, uh, but they can give you some insight that you're not going to get from somebody who's, you know, sitting in an office talking about this, uh, you know, 19 times out of 20. They, they simply don't understand because they're not there. How many times, I know we're almost out of time here, how many times have we talked to people in, in elected officials at all three levels of government, Mike, who say, you know what, uh, yeah, we're doing what we can, blah, blah, blah. Then all of a sudden, one of their family members, one of their loved ones, has to access the system, uh, whether it's an ER or whatever the case might be. And they are outraged by what they see. And they say, this is just not, you know, this is just unforgivable. Well, why don't you take that attitude into these discussions and say, okay, fine, let's, let's come up with some solutions here instead of really regurgitating the same stuff that we've been doing. And the old idea, uh, you, know, you know, you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. It's just not going to get us anywhere. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, so many of the doctors, nurses, frontline healthcare workers I've talked to said, you know, a lot of members of the public don't realize the state of crisis the healthcare system is in right now until they need to access it. And and we saw that just this past weekend in, you know, my community in Guelph, where you literally had every ambulance in the area uh, stuck at Guelph General Hospital uh, struggling to offload uh, patients who needed to get to the emergency room. Uh, but everything was overloaded. And, you know, that's just unacceptable. And and that's a, that stems from a lack of investment. 
You know, we've had one of the the least resourced healthcare systems in in all of Canada. And until we start making those investments, people are going to be in that situation. And it's very frightening when your loved one is sitting in an ambulance and they can't access the emergency room because it's too full. Mike Schreiner, Green Party leader. Uh, as always, Mike, thanks so much for this. Uh, we uh, look forward to the discussion and the debate when you uh, finally bring this stuff up in the legislature. But I appreciate your time today. Yeah, th- thanks, Bill. And uh, keep shining a spotlight on this issue. You can bet. That's, uh, that's what we need to be doing, each and every one of us. Thanks again, Mike. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, of course, that the German Chancellor is in Canada meeting uh, with the Prime Minister. Actually, they're hop- kind of hobnobbing all over the place. They started off in Montreal, they were up in the East Coast, uh, in Toronto, and then heading back to Stevensville later on today. Uh, but the Prime Minister and the German Chancellor have uh, used a, a joint news conference in Montreal uh, to accuse Russia of trying to use the issue of turbine repairs as a cover for recent cuts to gas exports through key pipelines. What Russia is doing is splitting population, splitting allies, splitting all those who are supporting the Ukraine. And this should never, never succeed. And this is the reason why we are so thankful for the decision of the Canadian government. Uh, that's the uh, Chancellor, of course, through a translator with his comments uh, yesterday. And uh, they're continuing those discussions today. Interesting relationship and an interesting uh, uh, agenda for the uh, the two uh, world leaders over the next couple of days. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Oral Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning. Let me ask you right off the top about, about the fact that this is actually happening. Uh, the, the, of course, the, the chancellor is relatively new to the job, taking over from Angela Merkel just a little while ago. Uh, but seems to have, I, I don't know if there's a friendship, but there seems to be at least a pretty strong business relationship uh, that they seem to have struck at the G7 meeting I, over in Europe a little while ago that didn't really exist before between uh, Merkel and, and Trudeau. What, is there something different here? Is it personalities or is it the urgency of the economic situation that, uh, that, that both countries are facing? I think it's a combination that uh, it is a very different situation and uh, I think uh, Olaf Scholz uh, recognizes some of the issues, although not all of them. And uh, there has been a relationship uh, that uh, Chancellor Scholz has had with Canadians uh, going back uh, some time. He was the mayor of Hamburg and he had uh, worked together with the then Minister of Foreign Trade, uh, Christian Freeland. So he is familiar with Canadian politics and, and Canadian politicians. And th- let's face it, the economic situation in Germany has changed uh, extensively, of course, in the last little while. Uh, due, I guess, in large part to, to the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and certainly the reaction of Putin. Uh, this is really all about energy and, and the upcoming winter months. I, I, there's a sense of urgency, I would imagine, with the Chancellor here. There is a sense of urgency. Uh, there are things that he, uh, he has been doing that he can do and there are things that he should do that he hasn't quite done and there are things that Canada could do that we are not quite doing. Uh, the Chancellor made a statement that I think reflects uh, part of a recognition of reality but also the problem with Germany. He said Russia is no longer a reliable business partner and that of course, is correct in uh, 
a simple interpretation, but it begs the question, what does he mean that it is no longer a reliable partner? Germany had been warned for decades that Russia was not a reliable partner, that dependence on Russia was very dangerous. When a former president of the United States brought this up to Germany, the German foreign minister basically laughed in the American president's face uh, that the possibility that Russia would not be delivering natural gas because they believed that there was this kind of interdependence. We pay the Russians uh, money, they deliver cheap gas, that underpins our economy, we can do away with nuclear power after Fukushima, and we can uh, uh, build our exports on the basis of the supply of uh, energy from Russia that is reliable. But it should have been evident that Russia has never been, under Vladimir Putin, a reliable partner. Russia has used for a long time, under Vladimir Putin, energy as political leverage. What was the relationship between Angela Merkel and, and Putin? Because uh, I know that there was a, a great deal of conf uh, confrontational uh, reaction from other G7 members, of course, uh, when I uh, talk about the extension of the pipeline or the, the doubling of the pipeline uh, that was on the books for the longest time until the invasion, of course. And then, you know, under pressure from, uh, I guess, world leaders, as a matter of fact, they, they've decided to cancel that. But, uh, the, you know, they may have just looked the other way. They did, that no matter what they knew what was going on in Russia, and no matter what they knew what Putin was doing, whether it was in Crimea or in Ukraine, for that matter, uh, they just seemed to say, well, that's politics and this is business, and let's just do business. With Angela Merkel, there were two crucial factors. One was the seduction of inexpensive energy. It made German industry very competitive. Uh, Germany benefited enormously from cheap energy, uh, while it depended on security uh, on other states, particularly the United States. At the same time that Germany was getting all this energy at low prices, the risks that were um, accompanying the supply of this energy, that is the possibility that Russia could turn uh, aggressive, that Russia was a danger, that risk was borne by the rest of NATO. Germany reduced under Angela Merkel its armed forces dramatically. German expenditures as a percentage of the GDP were extremely low. They did not confront the reality that Russia had already invaded Ukraine in 2014. And yet German uh, expenses uh, uh, on the military were absolutely inadequate. About a one third of the German Air Force, as I mentioned on a previous program, could, could not fly. So in that sense, Angela Merkel, who was an extremely capable leader, had a kind of blind spot for Russia because of energy and because she was perfectly willing, and this is a long German tradition, to have allowed others to pay for German security. And now we have a situation where Russia has shown what it's really about, and it ought not to have been surprising. So Germany's scrambling for energy. Under Angela Merkel, they had also decided, following the accident of Fukushima, to close down all the nuclear power plant, uh, plants. Only three are left. Well, Olaf Scholz now has no choice but to keep those open. And uh, he may even have to fire up some coal plants, which are really polluting. And of course, the Germans have been buying energy from France. 70% of electricity uh, in France is produced by nuclear power. So uh, here was this aversion to nuclear energy under Angela Merkel continuing to a significant degree, 
degree under Olaf Scholz. But next story in France, which supplies ele uh, electricity, uh, France is now investing some like 57 billion uh, euros in future production of nuclear energy. And the European Parliament now has tried to get around this by saying, well, some natural gas and some electricity is actually green energy. At the same time, Russia is benefiting enormously from this attempted transition to green energy because the very large increase in energy prices is basically feeding Russian war machinery. So the increase in energy prices, all the money that has been going and is going into Vladimir Putin's coffers is actually costing a large number of Ukrainian lives. So as a result, of course, the, as we mentioned, the discussion of the G7 meeting about energy between the prime minister and the chancellor, uh, and, and the, the result, of course, is the meeting that's going on these days here in Canada. But the discussion at that time was about, you know, buying natural gas uh, from Canada as, as part of the solution to this, uh, which in many people's minds right off the bat, I guess, professors, was seem seemingly impractical because uh, certainly we have the product here, but getting it over there is going to be problematic. And uh, and I know they were discussing that again yesterday and said, okay, maybe the whole idea of, of shipping it over there is, is not in the books right now because it's too costly. Uh, but yet the discussion is still taking place. Uh, w w is Canada part of the solution for Germany's situation right now? Canada may be part of the solution not only for Germany's situation, but for the situation that uh, is existing uh, around, uh, around the world. We have a clash of two realities. In environmental dangers, on the one hand, and geopolitics uh, politics on the other hand. Um, I cannot think of any reasonable individual who would want to engage in the environment and put the planet in peril. At the same time, we also have the geopolitical reality that energy is a weapon. It has been weaponized by Russia, and uh, uh, Russia has been getting more revenues this year in the first six months uh from energy oil and natural gas than they received last year and this is allowing uh, vladimir putin to get around the sanctions to sustain his economy it had also allowed him earlier to build up a huge reserve something like 650 billion dollars and that encouraged him to go to war because he thought this would help him sustain russia during uh, a sanctions uh, period so we need to understand that geopolitical reality as, uh, as well. So in terms of protecting the environment, we, here we are talking about a business plan to sell uh, green hydrogen, which is very expensive. It's not going to come to the market for a very long time. So I'm not sure how good a business plan that is, but we're proceeding with that. And yet we are dismissive at the federal level about possibly building pipelines to the East Coast to sell Canadian natural gas that would not only help Germany, would also help bring down energy prices globally. One of the things that would uh, uh, really damage Vladimir Putin's aggressive foreign policies would be to push down energy prices. Uh, Canada has that capability. Now, it is understandable we are also concerned by the environment, but th there is the short term when we have this huge geopolitical crisis, when people are dying in Ukraine, uh, in the long term, where naturally we would like to protect the environment as much as possible. And we ought to be able to find a solution to that 
where we can do things in the short term uh, which uh, uh, will help Ukraine, which will uh, defeat Russian aggression, which would then keep our economies growing. So then we have the means to get the new technology and to move to clean energy, which I think reasonable people uh, around the world would like to see. So both, but both solutions, as you mentioned, though, are long term. The hydrogen is not going to happen anytime soon. You know, the plant that they want to build in the Atlantic provinces to try to facilitate a move to Europe is not going to get built anytime soon. It's very expensive. As a matter of fact, I, yesterday, I guess the prime minister basically employed the private sector to get involved and said they could help. You know, with with uh, you know helping, but not you know being the major partner in this. But the solution that he talked about here, though, uh, it, it was rather uh, unusual. He said, look, we're going to continue to, to supply natural gas, but we're going to send it to Asia. Uh, and and that, you know, the fact that we're easing the pressure there might lower the price and make it more uh, affordable, I guess, for, for European nations like Germany. Does, does that make economic sense? If we increase the flow enormously, and perhaps Canada has that capacity, then uh, this is a global market. So uh, it, it may indeed be the case. But we would have to make sure that that is what's happening. And so it involves uh, getting more uh, energy out of the ground. It means uh, perhaps uh, enhancing uh, the capacity to liquefy uh, natural gas that uh, we do not yet have. We also need to appreciate that uh, despite Russia and China signing a variety of agreements about the environment, they don't keep any of those agreements. And Russia is moving massively to develop energy sources in the Arctic. We are not. And so uh, how much of an emergency are we facing that is a geopolitical threat? In order to be able to have clean energy, we have to get there. We have to survive economically. We have to defeat uh, Russian uh, aggression in, in, in Europe. We have to deter Chinese aggression in, in Taiwan. And uh, we have to make sure that the less developed countries that don't have our resources are able to get inexpensive energy so they can survive because for them it's not just being able to have a high standard of living. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of having enough food uh, to uh, be able to feed their population. And so uh, energy uh, uh, shortages, high energy uh, uh, prices, not only damage Western economies, but they can absolutely devastate the poorer countries. So, uh, yes, by putting more energy on the market on the West Coast can help. The question is how much? And I do not see a massive move to dramatically increase Canadian supply and without that uh it's not going to make frankly that much uh, that much difference professor Oroboran, as always professor thank you so much for your insight into this i appreciate the time today thank you thank you very much let's uh, do a quick break i will continue to follow that story of course uh, the chancellor and the prime minister continue to meet today and uh, they're expecting some more announcements uh, but probably a little bit later on this afternoon our time uh, to do with the hydrogen situation you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml uh, last week we uh, told you that uh, the major players in the pga tournament those that are left 
uh, had a closed door meeting to talk about uh, what they're going to do about the defections uh, to the uh, Lee uh, golf tournaments, of course, and a number of other things. And well, there were it was one of these things where there was no management, nobody from the PGA that was there except the players themselves. And uh, we're told it was a pretty fruitful discussion, but not a whole lot of detail. So what is going to happen as a result of this? Uh, I want to bring uh, Joe Callahan back into the conversation. Joe, of course, is a journalist uh, with the Toronto Star and The Guardian. Uh, Joe, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us again today. Good to be with you, Bill. Glad to be here. Uh, what do you think was talked about and what what purpose, uh, you know, we, we, we know there's a lot of concern here because we've heard some of the comments from a number of the players right now. Uh, a number of them have become rather heated and some of the comments rather acrimonious in the last little while. Uh, are, are they looking to, to battle these guys? Are they looking to, to live peacefully together? I mean, what, what do you think the goal is here? I think, unfortunately, peace has, peace will no longer be given a chance, Bill, I think is the one, <laughs> of the, one of the main takeaways. But no, look, a lot of things were discussed. And I think if we were to take a step back from kind of everything we're saying, and I have to say off the top, for 23 players, 23 professional sportsmen, it's been pretty watertight in terms of what's come out. But we do know, thanks to some great reporting and um, a few kind of uh, intimations from a play around, players around the, in that group, um, and some of their representatives that, you know, two things were happening at once from my point of view. One, these group of players were cry- kind of trying to decide what way they're going to do go at uh, this and what way golf is going to change in the future. But something else was happening, Bill. And for me, the most interesting thing here is Tiger Woods was, I think, almost figuring out what his role is in golf going forward. Because according to a lot of people with kind of uh, a couple of people with very kind of intimate knowledge of the situation, this meeting was basically Tiger becoming almost a shadow commissioner of the PGA tour. Um, Alan Shipnook, the great, uh, great uh, former sports illustrated reporter, uh, golf reporter, longtime golf reporter there who kind of kicked off all this with his, uh, with his book about Phil Mickelson um, mm-hmm. kind of described it as uh, you know, uh, Tiger walking in and being like, man, I built all this and you guys are screwing it up. So I'm going to take it over because, you know, we spoke, Bill, uh, this summer, earlier this summer and kind of, you know, that walk down the 18th for Tiger Woods at St. Andrews and the tears and everything we know from Tiger Woods is he's not built as a competitor to kind of go out and end his career that way. So I kind of see this as Tiger taking command and carving out a role that isn't on the course and isn't as a competitor, but actually continues to shape golf and the way he has shaped golf for 25 years now. The nuts and bolts of it, what we do know is that Tiger and Rory McIlroy together leading this are proposing a kind of a tour within a tour, uh, upwards of 18 no-cut events, much bigger purses, kind of 20 million is kind of what has been rumored. In essence, it's almost a live-like blueprint. And, yeah, that's what you know, surprised me. You know, it's it's kind of like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, I, and I, I know that's not their mindset, but a lot of the stuff that uh, that the live was, you know, throwing out there to say, this is why we're better, this is why we're different, uh, these guys are ready to adopt. They're ready to adopt some of it. And then there's an intriguing little uh, flicker yesterday from Golf Week magazine, a report there, that on top of that, there's also, they're looking at a series of kind of, one day, uh, almost stadium events. <laughs> the, 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 the term used was non-green grass golf, which I just, you know, try and get your head around that one. <laughs> and very tech, very tech and very social focused. Think kind of long drive contests. Think, you know, there's a, a company called Top Golf in the US, which has kind of created these really amazing kind of driving ranges, which are skills challenges. Um, I think that 
ultimately getting the 23 guys in the room and, you know, from all the reports, there's absolutely unanimous uh, kind of agreement on how they go forward from here. But even Rory himself afterwards said, you know, we need to get these top guys together more often than we do. We've seen a, a little flickers of the made for TV stuff too, Bill, right? You know, we've had those, uh, those matches around U.S. Thanksgiving where it was kind of maybe it was Tiger and Phil with Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers or Peyton Manning, yeah. etc. So there has been kind of toes dipped in those directions. But one of the big changes for the future of golf here as well is that Tiger and Rory in, in this group of players are pushing the PGA to ditch its nonprofit status. The PGA Tour has, since its inception, been uh, been a nonprofit. When we think about the numbers and the money involved in golf, that's kind of striking. But it has very much kind of been a little bit uh, defined by that and kind of almost respected by it. But now, with the way that Live has kind of come in and almost gazumped it, that's held its back. That's held the PGA Tour back. And so, yeah, the PGA Tour has kind of been pushed by the players to kind of actually ditch that nonprofit status, and that would be a way to equip itself with private investors coming in to counteract the kind of huge financial wealth of the Saudis. A lot of people probably are surprised by that. I mean, I know, as you mentioned, it's been that way for quite some time, the not-for-profit status, but given the amount of money that's been thrown around there and the sponsorships uh, involved, uh, you, you nobody would have realized that if you're relatively new to the game. Uh, mm. But you're right. I mean, you know, if you're going to fight fire with fire, then you've got you know, you, to have that tool, I guess, as well, because that's what Liv is doing. Uh, yeah. I, but the, the, now the golf season's almost over. Now there's one more big tournament, of course, the championship tournament coming up. And and by the way, just as a sidebar, I'm glad Corey Connors qualified for that too. He yeah. had a pretty good round in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but are, are these guys, these 23? I mean, they, they're speaking for a lot of other golfers too. Uh, and I got the same sense as I listened to some of the comments and, and what was actually happening here, Joe, that the that, that Tiger's taking the lead on this. I mean, this this was, as you mentioned last week, he flew in specifically for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got the sense that it was, he's the guy driving the bus here. That He says, look, at, we got to get together. Uh, because you've had individuals that were making comments about this before, but there didn't seem to be a concerted group effort here. I, I get the sense that there's a sense of solidarity after they had this meeting. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, even kind of, it's very Tiger-led with Rory kind of there. Uh, almost well, as he's a, a lieutenant, isn't he? If Tiger's yeah, the head... It, the... Yeah, I think Rory's actual quote at the BMW Championship was, Tiger's still the alpha. Um, yeah. There's also an intriguing role here, Bill, which I find intriguing. Obviously, I'm, I'm Irish-born and bred. Been played by J.P. McManus. J.P. is one of Ireland's richest men. He's a billionaire who has uh, made a significant chunk of his money from sports gambling and other sports interests. Uh, he owns the hotel where the 2027 Ryder Cup will be. And every year he has quite an, an incredible pro-am at his golf club that attracts the best of the world. He usually has it the week before the British Open. But it was at the pro-am this year where Woods and Rory got together with a very smaller, tighter group. But they had their first kind of confab, if you want. And McManus actually provided a bit of counsel. McManus, if you want, is the kind of guy that if the... Uh, non-profit status was was to be ditched. He's the kind of guy you could see putting in half a billion uh, for, you know, investment in golf, etc. So, you know, there is kind of outside um, uh, advice coming their way. Tiger Woods' agent as well is kind of seen as playing a part in this. Tiger Woods' agent is one of kind of the mega agents of golf and none of his players have defected. So, 
you know, it certainly is kind of Tiger stepping up into that role. But yeah, as you said, this week is going to be super intriguing, though, because it's the it's a tour championship in uh, in Atlanta at uh, East Lake, is the, the 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 golf club there. And you know, this is kind of the culmination of the entire season. But the week after is the next Live Golf event. That's September second in Boston. And by the time that rolls around, we're expecting at least seven big name defections to live. Um, uh, led by Cam well, Smith. Cameron Smith is going to be one of them because yeah. I, I mean that's one of the worst kept secrets in golf right now, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and and the one that's really up in the air, which is going to be really intriguing, giving given you know we can be a little bit myopic about kind of the nor- the North American influence in golf, but Hideki Matsuyama is the other one that's rumored, and Hideki Matsuyama as a kind of you know a guy who moves the needle. Japan is a country that is absolutely crazy about golf, and so him potentially moving it hasn't been confirmed there's kind of listening to people who kind of are more in the know kind of say he's a little, still a little bit torn but what was striking was that of the 23 people at that meeting last week well cam smith wasn't one that wasn't surprising but hideki didn't go either um there may have been other reasons for that we don't know but yeah so this week will be very interesting and not just because uh, jay monahan the pga tour commissioner who you know may or may not be kind of uh, having some of his duties handled by Tiger Woods now. Uh, he was due to have his press conference, originally due to have his press conference today, Tuesday. Uh, it's been pushed back to tomorrow. Um, so with all of the proposals from the players that are kind of sitting at his desk and the understanding is that the PGA Tour are very well receptive to a lot of the proposals that the players have made, uh, that even tomorrow in his Wednesday press conference, we could learn a lot more from Jay Monaghan on, in terms of kind of timelines for both of these things, the kind of the one day stadium series, whatever that looks like, a kind of fun techie thing. But the the more important parts would be that kind of tiger led tour within the tour, the 18 hugely prolific, um, hugely lucrative events. I guess, look, let's be a little bit parochial just for a moment. I'd wonder, I wouldn't worry, but I would wonder where the uh, RBC Canadian Open would fit in, in that because 18 mega money events, that really does kind of make a, a two tier system, you know? So I yeah. think for for us and for the hope here in, in, in Canada would very much be that, you know, uh, RBC Canadian Open uh, would be one of those 18. You know, I'm, I'm sure that the PGA Tour seeing kind of the Saudi influence and the kind of more global aspect of that, they wouldn't want all 18 of those to be in the U.S., you know. I, I would hope not, and and I'm growing, getting the sense anyway, Joe. And I think you and I talked about this just before uh, uh, this year's uh, Open at uh, George's. Uh, the, the the guys on the tour, the uh, on the men's tour especially, I think have a, a more open minded approach about coming up to Canada. It used to be like uh, you know, once in a while you get you know a handful of uh, of some of the top players, uh, but a lot of the big names come up here and play now too. And I, it, it speaks to the quality of the golf courses and the fact that they've increased the prize money too. But uh, you, and but I think a lot of them still kind of look at that as a second-tier tournament as opposed to the big four in, in they're the golf season that are down in the States. Uh, and it'd be kind of nice. I think it would actually elevate our status if they included it. Yeah, and I think, you know, whether this is kind of uh, by, by fate, by design, whatever, you know, this year's Canadian Open was a seminal moment for the PGA Tour because that was the same week that Liv were having their first event. Yeah. And the PGA Tour were able to battle back and show, look, we have... On the Sunday, like we spoke about before, we have Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, and Tony Finau putting on a show for a packed, packed gallery that, yes, it was Toronto. It could just as well have been any of the kind of golf heartlands across North America. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the scheduling of this year's event was particularly good because 
They put the Canadian Open on the week before the U.S. Open, so you had a lot of guys kind of warming up for it. But I think that kind of, uh, in terms of faith being justified in Toronto as a and, and Ontario as a kind of uh, a venue that could really kind of provide something emphatic, you know, you'd hope that that would be something that would be recognized indeed next season and going forward with all these changes that are going to come because look, this is, we're, we're one week on from this meeting. Obviously there's going to be a lot more to kind of come and initial plans often morph and change into other things. But, you know, uh, look, you said it yourself, Corey Connors, and this has been a great year for Canada, you know, for Canadian golf, men's and women's golf uh, Oh yeah, on, on the professional side. And, you know, I would say that Canada is in a pretty good place. Obviously, you hope that it wouldn't kind of somehow fall between the stools here, you know? We've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to swing back to these changes and whether or not Jay Monaghan's going to be open and the rest of the guys, uh, the Board of Governors, uh, to some of the stuff. Uh, and I'm always intrigued by the, the role that Tiger is playing here. You know, uh, Even the other day when uh, the tournament, I guess we were talking about with uh, Dan Hicks was NBC broadcast with Azinger, and they were talking about Tiger's legacy. Uh, and certainly the the wins and, and the wins of the majors, et cetera. He's not going to catch Nicholas. We all know that. That's out the window now. But I, I, he's got to be concerned about his legacy too. And I, we, I think a lot of us are thinking about, well, yeah, but how can he? Because he can't, you know, he's not going to be on the golf course much longer. Uh, but he, this is this is a, a different mindset for Tiger to say, look at, I, I can be the guy. I, I don't think he's doing this because he's looking for the adulation to say, hey, I saved the PGA. I think he's doing it because he thinks it's a job that needs to be done and he's the guy that can do it. Yeah, he can. And we shouldn't, I, I agree with you 100%, Bill. I think that, those things are driving Tiger. He's a guy who's incredibly driven. Anything we've seen, uh, any documentaries, any of the great kind of profiles that have been written about him and his story, you know, we know how driven he is. Ultimately, he's also an incredibly good businessman. And if he, if, if the PGA Tour ditches its nonprofits and kind of brings in this brand new kind of tour within a tour and it becomes a five, six, seven billion dollar enterprise of which he owns five or ten percent then happy days <laughs> you know he's doing quite well for himself as well um and i think ultimately for all the money that the saudis have pumped in this year with greg norman at the helm and for all of the names that they have brought aboard phil mickelson probably for the kind of average punter the, the biggest name live don't have tiger and they don't have rory and ultimately that means they don't have golf um, and I realized, I, re I realized that, you know, combined uh, Rory and Tiger have precisely one major since uh, 2014. But now for a quarter century and more, they're kind of the two figures that have dominated the sport in an era where golf has been completely revolutionized. And Tiger was the man who revolutionized it. Passed the baton a little bit to Rory, but, you know, never quite releasing it. Um, but they're in, their own relationship is very interesting here. But yeah, ultimately, this, this will be something that kind of, you know, Tiger as much as you might think that he's been in the shadows, et cetera, he's clearly kind of been thinking and plotting. And like I say, the fact that his, his agent, who is a, a big mover in the, and Mark Steinberg, a big mover in the sport and none of the players on his roster, Justin Rose is another, none of them have gone would tell you that Tiger's got quite a few kind of, uh, you know, quite a few tentacles in this in a, in a positive way. He's kind of really, you know, he's the one who's moving the pieces on the chessboard here. How punitive do they want to be? I mean, some of the comments that Rory has made and some of the other guys on the tour has said not. it's one thing to shut them up, but they, it's got to be a lifetime suspension. 
Uh, you know, they, they were concerned about some of these guys from Live that were coming back and playing in some of these tournaments. Uh, can they slam the door on these guys? I know there's a lawsuit pending about this whole thing now because the, the Mickelson and a few other guys are, are, are saying this is illegal. Uh, yeah. And that's yet to be determined. But the, the action of simply saying, when you leave, you're gone for good. Uh, a lot of the guys are in favor of that. Would Monaghan go to that extent? I, I honestly think that, you know, there's a few players there that ultimately, eventually, if this thing was to launch, it won't launch till 2024, right? It won't launch in the 2023 calendar. They couldn't turn it around that quickly. They could start mm -hmm. making moves towards it, and they do need to make moves soon. Um, but ultimately, there's probably a few of those players that they would like to have back eventually, you know? So I think the, I could see them kind of making a full kind of, you know, uh, 2023, you guys are banned from everything. 2024, when we start our new shiny toy, maybe you guys can come back into the fold in a certain way. So I think there'll be a certain amount of, you know, uh, uh, repercussions. But yeah, you used a good term there, Bill. Like, how punitive will they be? Ultimately, as well, uh, you know, for Tiger, for Rory, for uh, Scotty Scheffler, Xander Schauffele, Justin Thomas, all the guys who are here on the kind of PGA Tour side of things, you know, a lot of these guys are still their mates. You know, Brooks Kopka, maybe not, that's a bad example. Brooks Kopka it doesn't strike me as being anyone's mate. Um, but, you know, there are some <laughs> <laughs> there are some golfers there, a lot of golfers who have gone to live who are still kind of quite close with them. You know, Lee Westwood and Rory would be good pals, that kind of way. You know? Oh, yeah, so yeah. I don't think they'll be absolutely slamming the door, but they will want to make some more emphatic moves. And I, I think, like you say, we started this conversation with, you know, you, you asking me, like, can there be peace? I don't think there is. And I think that what we'll see from the PGA Tour now is very much a we're going our own direction. We no longer well, care. Here's yeah, and I think just, just to put a cap on that, because uh, what was it? Uh, I, I forget which one of the guys was that just left to leave it. Anyway, he was talking to Patrick Cantley, and he says, well, I'll see you on the course. And he says, no, you won't, which I think speaks to their mindset. Like, you you, you made a choice. And uh, sorry, buddy, that's it. We can still yeah. be friends, but we're not going to be, you know, tight we're not bffs anymore so uh, there's a lot of acrimony here anyway uh interesting story and it'll be fascinating okay. to see uh what jay monahan's got to say later this week joe as always thank you for the time today really appreciate it great to chat bill take care joe callahan of course journalist who covers golf and a whole bunch of other stuff of course for the toronto star and for the guardian the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.